welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to introduce once again Jonah Sachs to the podcast. Jonah is the co-founder and chief storytelling officer of Free Range Studios, an advertising and marketing firm that specializes in non-profits and socially responsible businesses. Jonah's new book, Unsafe Thinking, explores latest research into creativity and performance to present effective strategies to achieve high performance and creativity and deliver successful innovation. So very nice to speak to you today, Jonah, and welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast again. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Great. So you've been busy um, and you have a new book coming out called Unsafe Thinking. And I'd really like to talk to you about the key ideas in the book and think about what the lessons might be for social entrepreneurs, social innovators of all kinds. Um, what What is unsafe thinking, Jonah? The idea of unsafe thinking is that we all rely on thought patterns and patterns for success that get us to a certain point in our lives. But with the world changing so quickly, we all have this sense that we have to change the way that we approach problems, the way that we think. But we're pre-programmed by evolution to return, especially in times of stress, to the most obvious, safe, um, expected patterns so that we can move quickly and get on to the next thing and react um, predictably. You know, of course, when times are changing, we need to be different and we need to act in ways that make us uncomfortable. But we're so we have so much difficulty doing that. So in the book, I really looked at how do we embrace intelligent risk? How do we face face anxiety? How do we not take that same path that seems so irresistible, but we just know in the back of our minds is going to lead us to the same result that we're always getting? So it's really about how do you break out of conventional thinking? How do you change your thought patterns and challenge yourself to be more creative? Great, great. What is conventional thinking? What's, what's that actually mean? Well, there's two kinds of conventional thinking. There's the kind of conventional thinking where we look out and we see what other people in our field are doing. We see what you know is being taught in school. We see what's always worked, and we just you know try to copy it, even though we know um, that the best ideas are often incredibly counterintuitive when they're first presented. You know, who would have thought that we would ever get in strangers' cars or sleep in strangers' bedrooms? Uh, but now that's the most intuitive way of you know of traveling or, or you know and, and and getting a hotel. But those are the breakthrough ideas that are so unexplored, but um, you know, and that's what gives them value. But conventional thinking, on the one hand, is just what everyone tells you is the way it's always been done. On the other hand, there's kind of conventional thinking, which is internal conventional thinking. This is how I've always done it. This is what I learned ten years ago works. This is what I learned as a child works. And um, we don't even necessarily think that that's conventional wisdom, but it's kind of our own conventional wisdom telling us to do things the same old way. And again, there's nothing wrong with patterns. There's nothing wrong with falling back on how we've done things. But when we perceive that those things are no longer working, uh, the real the real problem is not changing at that moment and not trying something new, even though you know that runs counter to how our minds tend to work. 
Right. Right. So is this essentially a, a kind of, I'm not going to say another book on creativity and, you know, creative thinking, kind of you know, Edward de Bono, but, you know, how to creative think. What's, you know, there's, um, what is it that you would say that's different about what your approach to this? Because, I mean, there, I guess if you put in innovative thinking or innovation or these kind of things on the internet, you find thousands of, you know, uh, pieces, articles about this. I mean, is this, does this come out of some research? Does this, you know, where where do the ideas come from, Jonah, here that excite you the most? Yeah, so there is quite a bit of creativity science in this book and performance science in this book. But I think the difference is that this is not so much about how do you adapt a, you know, a new brainstorming technique or a new way of forming a team or a new set of processes that will make you more creative. This is really sort of how do you confront those things that you hold most dear, that form your identity, that make you you. And how do you question, you know, is that really working for me anymore? So I think that there's a uh, an element that readers might find familiar who know a lot about the science of creativity, um, but that's only sort of one piece of it. It's really about how to bring habit change, mindset change, uh, identity change in the pursuit of more creativity. So some of the things that I looked at are, you know, how feeling like an expert makes us more stupid. But you know, that's that's a huge problem in that we are often paid for our expertise. We are our egos are often attached to that expertise. But we there's a good deal of science that shows that the more we identify with that expertise, the slower we learn. Or um, <clears throat> how collaborating with people, and this is very important, I think, for social entrepreneurs and social innovators how collaborating with people who share our values and worldviews make us far less nimble and far less creative and how that locking ourselves in with people that we think are our best collaborators because they share the same goals and values as us really limits our worldview and our creativity. So I found that one to be very surprising as someone working in the social change space and a very hard lesson to, um, <clears throat> to really take in. Yes. You know, I, I looked a lot at these sort of common myths about intuition, uh, which is not usually looked at in the creativity sciences, but, uh, you know, how intuition is this great source of deep wisdom that, you know, can give us so much more information than our conscious minds can, but how that intuition is so often polluted by bias and, you know, conventional, conventional wisdom disguises intuition. So how do we train our intuition to know the difference between just thinking biases and uh, actual kind of deeper pattern recognition. So I think there's a lot of new stuff here and bringing together a lot of different elements that have not been brought together in the same place before. And I, I really hope that people will not look at, um, you know, oh, there's Steve Jobs. How did Steve Jobs do what he did? That's amazing. I could never do that. Or here's some new tip or technique, but much more, who am I? And who, who do I want to be if I want to create more breakthrough solutions? Right. And and you're talking about breakthrough solutions here. How much uh, value do you attribute to breakthrough solutions? We hear a lot about, you know, disruption and, you know, these kind of ideas. And then I guess on the other hand, you know, and I guess I'm thinking uh, as well about social entrepreneurs, you know, a lot of it is sheer graft, you know, in difficult circumstances, you know, uh, resilience and an ability to follow something through, um, you know, to where is the spark of creativity? How important is that? Or, or I guess to what extent uh, you talk a little bit about the audience that this would be relevant to in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I've been working for the last 20 years on cl climate change communications, for instance, uh, and climate change issues. 
And I know that there is not going to be any magic solution where someone's like, oh, we've solved climate change. Here, you know, here's the thing that's going to do it. Um, so I'm not really thinking – So I don't come from a world necessarily where I'm always thinking, you know, what's that next huge disruption that's going to change everything? But I'm more thinking in terms – although you know, we, we obviously need to look for those kind of solutions. In the U.S., for instance, you know, we can't make any progress on gun violence. It seems clear that we need a new political approach to what we're doing, not to just keep you know, sort of rehashing the same debate again and again. We need, we need a new approach. Um, same goes for you know, and any number you know, of approaches to poverty, approaches to scaling um, you know, public health. It's not about the magic medicine that's going to create more public health, but it is about um, how organizations and entrepreneurs at any level get to these plateaus where it's very hard to sort of break through to that next level. And it, they reach this sort of natural equilibrium where they're no longer having that fresh energy that's, that was growing the organization to begin with and growing the solution to begin with. So this is really about how do you get to those roadblocks and then overcome them so you can keep scaling that, you know, keep increasing the scale of your ambition and impact. Um, so, yeah, I think we often think about, you know, magic bullets. I'm not really looking at that. I'm looking about how we can continue to deepen our impact and hopefully, you know, um, do bring fresh solutions to very old problems. Great, great. Now, clearly, you went back and you 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 looked in the research, and um, not even back is unfolding. There just seems to be tremendous amount of research uh, uh, that we're becoming aware of in terms of you know social uh, change, in terms of behaviors, in terms of you know uh, neuroscience, and just a proliferation. What were a few things that you 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 discovered um, in terms of your the research that you came across that you you that really inspired you? You know, as uh, someone who spent so much time creating, in, in my past work, creating, you know, messages that would try to really convert people in their thinking uh, on social issues, um, my discovery of things like the backlash effect where, you know, if you attack somebody's cherished values, not only will they not believe you um, with the information you're providing, but they're actually going to deepen their um, their opposition to what you're telling them and actually get stronger in, in the kind of thinking that you're trying to move them out of. Um, so I, I'd been sort of vaguely aware of how that might work, but not taking it very seriously because I was so focused on, you know, producing these amazing and powerful messages that people who agreed with me, you know, thought were just amazing, but um, didn't necessarily realize how difficult it was to move people who were on the fence or didn't quite agree. And, you know, one of the fantastic things for me was as someone who came up as an internet communicator and really, really embracing viral marketing on the internet, it was powerful and sobering to, to look at how much the backlash effect is amplified by digital media. So if you are hearing from somebody that you don't agree with, but you're not actually sitting face to face with them, you don't actually know them, uh, the backlash effect is massively magnified. But if you sit down with someone who doesn't agree with you and actually have a human one-to-one -one conversation, one-on-one -on -one conversation with them, uh, cherished beliefs and values actually can shift. So um, that was a big challenge, I think, to all the money that we're putting into, you know, Facebook manipulation and, um, you know, trying to influence each other on social media about the importance and the power of collaborating face-to-face -face with people and talking face-to-face -face with people who don't share our values. Um, so that, you know, that's a big one. Um, I looked a lot also just, you know, at a lot of the what we know about um, behavioral economics and about why people change, not necessarily even led by uh, a major shift in cognitive belief, but because a new and easy um, 
you know, behavioral opportunity opens up to them. And so how do we design new behavioral opportunities that really change the way that people think? I, I interviewed a guy who is working with American football players to try to solve this intractable problem that, um, you know, American football is so dangerous and people are getting concussions and the helmets that protect us from neck and head injuries actually cause the concussions because we're running around banging into each other with these beautiful helmets that protect our heads. Little do we know we're actually causing long-term brain injury. And he said, you know, there's nothing you can do with an 18-year-old to tell him not to lead with his head. And rule changes only have so much impact because, you know, a small penalty doesn't take people out of that behavior. Um, so you don't tell them and show them pictures about how badly their brain's going to be damaged if they engage in this behavior. What he's come up with is this amazing counterintuitive solution where his teams uh, practice without helmets. And um, then they play games with helmets. And even though it's dangerous to practice without helmets or seemingly so, it's just that repeated behavior of protecting their heads in practice and being kind of afraid on the field that they might hurt their heads uh, that makes them behave very differently in the game. And teams that do this uh, have 25% less head injuries or concussions, and um, they're not losing performance. So the Seattle Seahawks have adopted this practice now. So ideas like that, you know, how do you move people towards new behaviors, not just by trying to convince their heads, but, you know, chart new paths. Um, it's not intuitive for a lot of social change makers who are, you know, moving down that same persuasion path that they've always moved. So, yeah, I mean, it made me question a lot of the work that I, I had done and um, get smarter in, in the work that I'm doing. And I know you talk about flow and um, you, you looked at that as well. And, and it sounds um, flow is in another, I, I guess, pretty similar to what they call in, I guess, Chinese philosophy, Wu Wei. And um, that kind of sense of uh, space that where where the spontaneity where you, where you, where you can be spontaneous. Um, how, how does that fit in, Jonah? Yeah, I think there's a kind of uh, caricature of of creativity and um, you know flexible thinking, which is that you know it's this open, easy, and if you get into the right kind of flow, just this joyful process. And I, I had always felt a little uncomfortable with that. Because um, I think, as you mentioned, too, with this idea of, you know, sticking to things and grit, you know, there's that anything that you do, no matter what it is, is going to have these moments of slog and slowness and, and stuff you really don't want. There's activities you don't want to engage in. And then there's activities that are fun, the brainstorming, the seeing the results. And so I was really trying to figure out how do you maintain motivation throughout all of those phases? And how do you, um, you know, how do, how do you make it so that you're focused and moving towards that goal because unsafe thinking has a high cognitive load. We want to stop uh, often and, and, and our teams often drift away from motivation. So in really researching how motivation works, you know, I found that there are times where we need a lot of intrinsic motivation. We need to not be focused on the money that we're going to make or the goals that we're going to achieve. We need to just enjoy the process. And there's no better way to enjoy the process than using flow which is one of the most well-studied creativity principles uh, in science. And that is basically um, when you have this right mix, the right balance of skill for the challenge that you face. Um, so if, if, it, if a challenge is too easy, you're going to get bored. If a challenge is too difficult for your skills, you're going to get nervous and anxiety and you're going to want to shut down. But if you can really work to balance that level of skill with the level of challenge, what happens is people get incredibly focused. They have a wonderful time doing what they're doing. They enjoy it for the process itself. Um, and creativity really blossoms in those phases 
where you need to generate new ideas or you need to overcome major roadblocks on the on the path, you know, creative roadblocks on the path. So um, a lot of what we think about with flow is, oh, if you're following your bliss, you're going to be in flow. But it actually works differently than that. It's really can you get regular feedback on what you're doing and can you balance your skills to the level of challenge, which is why people endlessly play video games that have no real reward. Um, but it's just that right mix of, of, of and balance of skill to to difficulty. Yes, yes. But then there are other times when we don't need a lot of intrinsic motivation and we can't be in flow. You know, we, we've got to slog through spreadsheets and we've got to work really hard to to uh, you know just implement a solution that we came up with months ago. And that's where extrinsic motivation, you know, really focusing on giving ourselves small small bonuses and and rewards to our teams and recognizing the value of stick-to-itiveness and grit and celebrating that um, becomes important. So we can't expect to be in creative flow throughout the entire phase. But if we really kind of map where we are and, and really stay on task to be intrinsically motivated for the creative parts and then be accepting and extrinsically motivated for the, um, for the slog part and flow in and out of those two states – we can see a project through. And I, you know, again, you, I think you kind of pointed out a lot of times there's great ideas. We don't see them all the way through because we expect uh, the process to be inherently rewarding and it can't always be that way. Yes, yes. Are there a few clues to identify? Because um, you could be banging your head against the wall here trying to be as, have unsafe thinking, but it, not where it's appropriate. Are there areas where it's more appropriate than others? I mean, we talk about some of the execution and the, the stick to itness, um, and then there are other areas where you know we clearly you say, well, you know, um, this is an area where you know breakthroughs or creative thinking is going to have the most impact. Yeah, I, I, let me let me answer that on two levels. There is a sort of obvious, um, most direct answer to that is you know projects move through these divergent phases and convergent phases as i kind of just sort of mentioned is you know the divergent phase we need lots and lots and lots of ideas we need to try you know many paths and be willing to fail and there's a lot of you know creativity science that just says that more creative people aren't more ingenious creatively they're just better at having more ideas up front um and that it's a sort of blind process so the more you can stay open in those early phases that's where unsafe thinking is really important um, when you're in the ideation phase, for instance. So let's not shut down things just because they seem like, oh, that couldn't possibly work, or we tried that before, or that's too risky. You know, really keeping that openness is very important in that phase. You know, in the convergent phase, let's say you're diverging with many ideas, and when you converge, um, that's when you need to actually focus and say, we're not going to question the path that we're on um, until we've gone through these steps and gotten these results. And uh, we're not going to run back to safety the minute that we see early sign that's not working. We have to actually follow a process to see um, if this thing can take root in whatever you know we're, we're trying. And then we need to so not not constantly be questioning and breaking the rules. Yes. But I will say uh, on another level, so so all all projects kind of go through this. All efforts go through this convergence divergence. You you come up with many ideas. Um, you then try them out. Then you look to see what worked and didn't and come up with more divergent ideas about how to approach those problems and then try again and test. So that's natural. But um, I think that there are unsafe thinking moments where even in the sort of testing phases, for instance, we're not very good at being scientific thinkers. We have all these biases to try to if we're going to go out with a new solution to try to prove ourselves right and to put our egos into it. So to me, it's unsafe 
for a team to be able to admit its foibles, to look truly at data um, and question some of its most cherished beliefs and be able to see the world clearly, um, to be able to truly explore um, what the data might mean, what their learnings might mean. So even in those phases where you're just executing, um, keeping a very open mind, a scientific mind, um, is an unsafe to act in itself because we're so often trying to go out and prove ourselves right and seek evidence that, um, you know, that verifies our initial thoughts. And it's really important to seek evidence if we can that uh, undermines our, our current thinking. And if we can't find it, then we know that we're really on the right track. So I just think that there's so many places to put aside ego, to question, to face anxiety, um, to collaborate with people who are different than us, uh, to pull ideas that are unexpected at all phases of the process. But I wouldn't say the idea is just, you know, be unsafe all the time because we can exhaust ourselves and constantly be searching for the next great thing without really realizing that we might have the next great thing in our hands. Great, great. And, and, and what makes you think this is a learnable skill? This is something that people can consciously impact their, when they become aware that they can actually exercise influence on this skill. Well, there's a good amount of science out there that says that um, something like intelligence is not particularly a learnable skill. We can leverage our intelligence in better ways, but that's sort of somewhat fixed trait. Um, but creativity is uh, actually extremely learnable. Um, it is influenced in many ways by the people that we surround ourselves with, the environments that we're in. Uh, Teresa Amabile at Harvard has done a huge amount of work to show that people aren't necessarily creative. It's you know the environment that they're in, the situ situational. So if we change our situations, we can expand our creative creativity. Um, there's a lot of kind of mindfulness in the book where this sort of metacognition, the being aware of the ways that you're thinking um, makes it possible to change them. Uh, that, that science is pretty well established as well. And so if you use that science to not just think about the problem that you're working on, but actually think about the way that you're working on the problem as well, uh, you have the opportunity to shift those automatic behaviors. There's a lot of science on identity that if you say, um, I vote, I want to vote, or if you say, I am a voter, uh, there's a big difference in, 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 in your likelihood to actually vote. So when you identify with an action, um, that has a slight impact on whether you're going to actually carry it out. But if you identify that action as a noun about yourself, so if you say, I am a voter, that means you're much more likely to try to live up to that identity. So simply by saying, I am an unsafe thinker, I am committed, I want to be uh, unsafe, it triggers us to respond differently. So I'm, I'm really hoping that the book will help give some new lexicon to people to say, okay, wait, we're in a safe thinking moment, but we want to be unsafe thinkers. What might we do in this case to act differently? So I talk a lot about role models and how a lot of the kind of traditional role models are really broken. You know, as leaders, for instance, uh, there's this belief that people only want to follow confident, um, strong leaders. And so that we must kind of puff ourselves up to be the kind of leader people want. And yet surveys keep showing that people would rather follow humble, transparent leaders. And so, you know, these questions, if we change our role models, what does it mean to be a leader right now? What does it mean to be an innovator right now? Um, I guess one final idea is that, you know, I talk about the, the crazy ones ad, the old Apple ad that sort of says that, you know, the people who change the world are, are crazy ones who don't care about rules, who flout convention, um, who, who don't care what other people think about them. You know, that's really a myth that I found that most highly creative people struggle with the same kind of fears, the same kind of roadblocks that we all do. Um, and so when we, when we think and look at these iconoclastic 
uh, creative people, we often think that we can't really reach that status. But when we really break down how they're thinking, we see we have a lot more in common with them. I tell the story of Gandhi, who's probably the most creative social change maker of all time. And, you know, he was someone who seemed to be completely at peace with confronting the largest power structures in the world. And yet he was someone who started his life unable to even speak in court as a lawyer because he was so shy and so afraid to speak up and be heard. And so if we change the way that we see iconoclastic uh, creative people, I think it can also change how we see ourselves. So, you know, it's a book, right? We can we all read books and put them down and then go on with our lives. Uh, and I'm sure many of the readers will do that. But I also have a belief that these there's a lot of evidence-based work in there and stories of great innovators who I spoke to um, that can provide, you know, people who are willing to and ready to change themselves with a lot of pathways to do it. Fantastic. When is the book out, Jonah, and how can we get our hands on it? So it comes out uh, in the UK, April 19th from Random House. Um, and so that's available um, everywhere books are sold. Uh, in the US, it comes out uh, April 24th. So just a few days later, uh, it's being published in Russia, China, Taiwan, and Romania as well. Some uh, interesting smattering of places uh, a little bit later on in the year. So um, you can go to unsafethinking.com or jonasachs.com to learn more about it. Um, yeah, so that's where, where you'll find it. Fantastic. Well, I wish you the very best success. It sounds like it's, you've got, hit a sweet spot there. And uh, I think there's going to be uh, a big audience for this book. Um, thank you so much for sharing uh, your thoughts today with inspiring social entrepreneurs. Yeah, and thanks for some great, great, great questions, Virgil. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.